John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 823.MT2538, certificate number 50150. Naked came the stranger. Anne, honey, let's face it. All I know how to do is take off my clothes. Naked came... I don't even know how to say it. Naked came the stranger. Well, it's not like a spooky mystery novel. It is to me. Sex sex frightens me. (laughs) I know. I don't. Well, if a, it, naked. is there any scenario where you see a naked stranger and it's not a little scary? Hmm. Uh. Well, you're right. All nakedness is a little scary. Um. Spe- well, strangers are scary, especially if the stranger is coming, as it were. <laughs> I mean, I think it depends on how you know. You can know somebody a brief period of time, and they are still a stranger, but you know them a little. And so I guess naked came the stranger. It, the question is, how strange is this stranger? Right. If, if you see, a, and how naked? Right. If you see someone that's naked and coming and a complete stranger, I think that's scarier than if if they're like, oh, I mean, you, this is a stranger, but we've known each other for like two hours. There have movies. There have been movies that have kind of milked the scariness of seeing someone naked where you don't expect to see them naked, right. and, and it doesn't always have to be like the crone in The Shining. Right, like it's even it's even kind of spooky and uh, I don't know, just kind of disturbing in a way when uh, like Isabella Rossellini's nudity in Blue Velvet, I think, just because it's so weird to see someone walking down the street naked. Naked, it's it's too vulnerable. Yeah, it feels like something terrible has happened or is about to happen, which is probably usually true when someone's walking naked down the street. Have you ever seen someone walking naked down the street? I don't. Think so. I mean, not being a woman, I have not been like exposed to in public by uh, a creep or a flasher. Right. But that's happened to virtually every woman I know. Right. At some point. I don't know if that counts as naked. I have seen uh, naked people in the street and it has never been a good scene. It's been a bad scene every time. And, it, and, uh, and they've been women, not men. So... You're right. Drugs, it, drugs are involved. Yeah, drugs and and bad, just bad, bad times all around. Um, but yeah, there have been other times when someone who is nominally a stranger, but a new friend, 
has been naked, still a stranger for the most part, and yet it's not a terrible thing. A stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet, John. That's right. Or a stranger is a friend that you met a couple of hours. <laughs> uh, Ken, you are a famous author. I am not. Uh, one whose books uh, trouble the, the top spot in the New York Times bestseller list every time you publish a new one. Trouble, yes. <laughs> I'm famous and I'm an author, Harassed. but I'm not a famous author. Right, okay, that's interesting. But I have written 12 books. I feel like I have a pretty solid mid-list <laughs> resume. Let's call you a solid author. <laughs> I'm extremely tangible. Do you have a sense, I know you do, of what constitutes, uh, what sort of numbers constitute a bestseller? It is a little bit sad. It's probably changed over time. It has. I mean, the, the weird thing about publishing is that there are a tiny number of it's like it's like running a venture capital fund, basically, if you're a publisher. You're there's a very tiny number of mega bestsellers that are enormously profitable and fund the rest of the enterprise in which most books do not make back their advance. Right. So some books you know, if you get a Harry Potter on your list, then you can just know you're going to send sell 100 million copies. Sure. Everybody dines out for, for 50 years on it. And that uh, subsidizes a bunch of writers who, I mean, it's, it's a little different now that there's multiple New York Times bestseller lists. Like when I've been in, I think I was in the top 10 of a New York Times bestseller list, but it was like general nonfiction or, or something. It, it's all broken up by category right. now. Um, and I, I feel like my books, a book that does well for me will sell in the mid to high five figures. And that's. So 80,000 copies. That seems high for me, but yeah, that's, that's 50,000 copies. Yeah. 50. Yeah. Somewhere in that ballpark yeah. is what I would think seems is a, like a, a huge success. As right. It seems like a big, big book. But imagine if you, if, if you were, if you have 50,000 people watched your TV show, you'd jump off a bridge. Right. Although in, in my business, in indie rock, sure. 50,000 copies of a record is a, is a good showing. I mean, and you're I assume, in the top 2% of all records. And I assume the royalty system is not that different in that you're making a couple bucks a, a buck or two for each copy. It depends on the record label. If you had a, um, if you were signed to Atlantic Records or whatever, you know, Sony, and you sold fifty thousand copies, they would be really disappointed, and uh, and you would make zero dollars. But if you were on an independent label, fifty thousand copies would would be fairly profitable for you. I mean, that's the Long Winters albums. Uh, I think the top. Two selling ones are now edging toward having sold 50,000 copies after 10 or more years of, of being released. So we were never any any uh, bigger than your books or this, uh, or this podcast. Yeah, we, we imagine millions of, of uh, aspen tree colonies enjoying this in the future. Maybe that's just one sale. But, but in our era, I think we're inching up to maybe... Yeah, you know, get, 50,000 people might hear one of these over the lifetime of the show. Well, but you know, our show is still still pretty new, but also I think I think if we go back to the early episodes it's slightly slightly more than that now. Uh, but it is it is a long, a long tail. tail, long tail. Right. Um and that has uh that's always been true in publishing. I, it wasn't always true in in music because the price of, you know, the cost of getting into record making was prohibitively high. Uh, 
to make an album cost a lot of money. It used to cost a lot of money. Is it is it physically pressing it and distribution? And distributing it. And so in the old days of the music industry, there were regional releases. You know, uh, some a band would come out with a, a song that was regional to upstate New York. At, like, What's your favorite uh, upstate New York garage party rock anthem? Uh, actually, I have one. It's uh, by the band Duke Jupiter who was uh, sort of a, a New York band. They have a song called I'll Drink to You that came out in 1982. It's a great song. Not really. I don't think it bothered anybody. Right? Didn't trouble anyone past the sort of uh, the, the Geneseo Valley. How, how did you come across <laughs> this upstate New York post-punk classic? Growing up in Anchorage, I had a friend that had immigrated to Anchorage from, I think, Buffalo, and emigrated. This the is, same country. He didn't is, emigrate. This is 1982 thereabouts, and uh, and he brought the Duke Jupiter seven inch, and uh, it was. I mean, it's just good old fashioned rock and roll, but it um, it stuck with me. I could still sing the song for you. There is speaking of regional releases. There is a uh, Vancouver punk band called Ken Jennings. Oh, really? And they sent me a seven inch. Does it sound good? Uh, I. I, may, I hope they're not listening. I've never actually, I don't own a turntable. I've never uh, actually heard we'll, it. We'll play it in my house I should, I should bring it over. Um, so so it was tough to have a, in, in 1975, it was tough to have a, a band that was successful selling 50,000 copies. And I think- there, like You have to sell six figures at that time? Yeah, to, but, but there were several bands. I think even Aerosmith is like this. The first couple of records didn't sell very well. And it was only when Toys in the Attic came out that- all of a sudden, the the early records started to sell People as well. Discovered the back catalog, and it was it was maybe that that uh, record labels had invested enough in a band like that that they were willing to go three records to try and develop an audience. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore in in, in any field. It, no, in in any field. But but in the small scale, and this was our problem with with uh, with iHeartMedia, right? They their business model was to try to get 7 million people to listen to a podcast. And if there was, if there was a successful podcast that was slightly smaller than that. Once they found out you were one of the mid list shows, you know, yeah. we felt very good about that. And th- that was not their emphasis. Right. They didn't uh, support the show after that. Anyway, I feel like my way of saying it was nicer. Yeah. It, it wasn't their advertising emphasis. No, 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 that's right. It wasn't their advertising. And it's probably, honestly, I think on the ground, the effect, it's an effect of having ad sales on commission. You know, nobody wants to sell ads in the show that everybody's trying to sell ads in the show that has a million listeners. Yeah. That's where the none of the, the ad sellers is. for iHeartMedia wanted to sell. No ads on our show today. Today it's quite easy to yes. find ads because we're no longer using <laughs> a big company with a commission paid ad force. In the old days of publishing, and and this is up until the you know, the fifties and sixties, um, book publishing was really a, a largely, I guess, as you're describing, it is today, largely a loss leader. Um, most books didn't recoup the few ones that did supported the industry, but it was very much an old boy network and one of a kind of literati East coast smarty pants that were publishing, Middling books. Every once in a while, you'd get a Philip Roth that would become popular because his his book had fifty pages worth of masturbation talk. 
That's what people wanted. Or a Steinbeck, right? But but mostly it was a pretty staid group of of uh, New Yorkers that were that that filled the buying each other's books. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you see the vestiges of this today in publishing where they still uh are in an industry where it's it's not clear how it would make money. Like a lot of their practices just don't make sense. And they're clearly vestiges of a time when, for whatever reason, economic considerations were secondary. You know, sending an author around on a book tour. Like my first few books, I, I went to 10 or 20 cities because that was considered, I mean, it, it persisted as a perk, but that was considered the way to get word out about a book was sure. to, to fly an author to a city, have him read an excerpt to 15 to 25 people in a Walden books or a campus bookstore. And then somehow that would jumpstart interest. And of yeah. course, somebody would write an article in the local alternative paper. And even on the page, you can do the math and see that, you know, if 15 people buy a copy of a book that doesn't even pay the <laughs> one night in the hotel. Why are right. we doing this? Right. Well, it's a, it, it's a curious business, and I think you see now a lot of um, a lot of publishers. Their bread and butter is actually, uh, you know, autobiographies of celebrities, sports stars, uh, television stars, biographies of celebrities like Yoko Ono. Um, of celebrities like Yoko Ono, yeah, cookbooks. That's, you that's know, the bestseller list I want to be on. <laughs> stuff that that they think is going to jump out at an airport. Uh, and make you feel like, oh, I'll read a book by some CIA agent. You and know, and some they're right. All. That yeah. stuff does sell. Right. L- literary fiction, and particularly literary fiction, is a harder sell. You've got to put somebody in the mood of a movie without without being able to show them a, of a book without even being able to show them a trailer, right? Like you would in a movie. Uh, but in the 1950s and 60s, there was kind of an evolution in publishing that that uh, feels like it was uh, partly a a co-optation of what was happening in Hollywood. There's no way co-optation is the correct word. How, how would you pronounce it? I don't know. Co-option. Co-option? Co-opting. Co-op-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi-chi
Gene Harlow. Or right. Whatever. And and true crime, a lot of people, you know, a lot of stars overdosing and and Hollywood stories of murderers and so forth, you know, uh, like that that kind of stuff uh that was that th- th- this was not historical fiction, this was not um they weren't really spy or adventure novels. It was it was like they were they had a, a a lot of sex in them for what we think of as a prudish time. They're lurid and they're they're kind of about regular folks. Is that the idea there? Or or knowable, you know, you would you would see Elizabeth Taylor, but you would recognize her as a reader, but she'd have a pseudonym. You know, she'd be fictionalized, Lana Turner. But these in the books, they're they're famous people. They're they're glamorous, oftentimes. Heiresses and and uh, entertainers and whatnot. You know, one of the best-selling authors of all time is a man by the name of Harold Robbins. Oh, sure. Uh, Harold Robbins sold uh, millions of books and was a celebrity in his own right. Uh, he, as of this broadcast, has sold over seven hundred and fifty million books, which is a can you imagine astonishing number? And you see them all in used bookstores. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to walk through a used bookstore and just see shelves of this kind of Jacqueline Suzanne kind of disposable literature. You create a brand, and you know you can you're writing as fast as you can because people will finish one and on the train, and they'll they'll want another one like that. Well, Jacqueline Suzanne is a is a great example. You know, uh, she is kind of widely regarded as the as the author that um, invented the book tour. Interesting. Prior to Jacqueline Suzanne, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a sense of uh, an author being promoted as a kind of uh, Hollywood sex sort of celebrity in their own right. They would just sit at home and hope reviews came in. And Jacqueline Suzanne was first an actress. Um, she had uh, like a, a pretty long career as um, an initially kind of a stage actress and then got into – uh, got into television commercials and um, then had had several talk shows over the course of the fifties. She was um, she was never like a uh, you know a lead actress, but she started writing plays. She was kind of a a, a polymathic or you know a, like a, a a multi-talented person. So she's a personality even a, before she writes Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, a personality that uh, you know was a was a comedian. She played she she was she was the uh, spokesperson for um, for a lace and embroidery company uh, <laughs> that did television commercials. She she you know and she was a wit, uh, and only started writing. Um, Pretty late in her her career, like late fifties, she wrote a book about her dog. A book called Valley of the Dog. No, a book called Every Night Josephine. Her dog's name was Josephine, and she um, she wrote letters to friends about the funny antics of her dog Josephine, and they were like. Jackie, you should write a you book. You should write a book. And so she took these letters and compiled them into a book about uh, about Josephine, which went on to sell almost 2 million copies, probably by now 2 million. That's so funny because that's still a publishing juggernaut is the book about the dog. Yeah. 
Marley and Me or Jimmy Stewart's poems about his damn dog. Here in Seattle, it's the Art of Racing in the Rain guy. Uh, yeah, that's it's uh, for some reason. Dog owners want to read books about the other dog owners. Funny dog antics. And which, which doesn't seem like, books don't seem like the right medium for that. Well, you know, I mean, if you're a dog owner, you want to consume dog-based material in every media. I guess Because those true. people are also watching dog shows and listening to dog podcasts. I just feel like a description of a dog doing something cute. Like in, in, now that we're in the golden age of pet videos, someone describing one of these videos to me is death. Well, the thing about it is people like to, I think, um, they like to anthropomorphize dogs. That's true. The book gives you narration and viewpoint. and Right. So you can impart to the dog all kinds of motivations within a book, whereas a dog video, you're, you're just left to wonder. I thought it was, when I was a kid, I didn't like dog books. I thought they were boring. I mean, when the boy has a dog and then the dog dies, of course, I read many of those. Sure. But if it was The Incredible Journey or Ribsy or something from the point of view of the dog... I just realized very quickly, this dog has nothing to say. This dog right. doesn't even own clothes. Like, what? why do I care about what, what it thinks? Like, it, you know, it, yeah. it, would, it would eat its owner's face off. Yeah, it's a Ribsy would eat Henry Huggins' face off in the, after the apocalypse. Well, I think in the case of Josephine, Josephine was a little sort of lap dog. And uh, so not as likely to eat Jacqueline Suzanne's face. True. But... Uh, when the when the book started to sell and when it was popular, Jacqueline Suzanne, who had a long career in front of the camera or you know in the spotlight and li- and liked that part of life, uh, went on a tour with Josephine the dog uh. and became a draw. People would come to they loved the loved it so much they would come to meet her, get her to sign books. She was very. Uh, she catered to bookstores. She was very resp- She sent a lot of thank you letters, and so in a way, invented the idea that an author would go around the country and meet her fans, sign books, and really, they just came to to meet Josephine the dog and and Suzanne to you know together. They were they were um, it was a, a package deal. And authors regard that as a perk. They don't get out of the house much. Right. So the fact that they could actually. Go around the country and order room service. Very exciting to these to these That's people. That's right. They get to actually meet human beings. I was at a book event once, and I was asked if I wanted to meet Good Dog Carl. And you know, I, I was introduced to this dog that I was apparently supposed to know, and I, I pretended to be a, a huge fan of Good Dog Carl and his owner, yeah. who, who writes children's books about Good Dog Carl. I, I was like that when someone introduced me to J.J. Abrams. I was like, <laughs> "Hey, I know, it's nice to meet you. Are you some famous person." Uh, uh, Jacqueline Suzanne then wrote Valley of the Dolls, mm-hmm. which was a massive success. And it was exactly this kind of book, uh, sort of story of three women. The the titular dolls in this uh, in this book are drugs, right? The dolls are not the women. Is that drug slang? I don't know. Dolls? Well, she, invent- she invented it. Dolls were... Her sort of like code word for amphetamines, <laughs> and so all the, all three of the main characters in the book are you know they're all women from various walks of life and and their lives are destroyed by amphetamines. But it, there's a lot of sort of sexy. I'm sure there's lots of sexual and, adventures on the way. I mean that was the appeal of a lot of these books. They were bought by women at a time when uh, you know pornography was not available to women in any way. Right. Narrative porn rather than just sure. a, a looping. I don't know how much of this is cultural film. and how much is innate, but we actually think of this as a kind of thing that's that's particularly uh, 
interesting to women that they they prefer the description and the narrative rather than the the visual version. Yeah, this is the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, situation where the book gives you it has just enough of an imprimatur of literature that it's something you could read on the train, something to not be embarrassed by. But then there's all this sort of bodice ripping. I don't like this double standard whereby. You know, you'd get you'd sneer at somebody reading a Jugs magazine on the train. Well, that's but. the thing. You're just sitting on the train with your phone, you know, trying to conceal the the 30 second gif of two people making out. That's what happens at public libraries now. Yeah. Not so much on the train. Right. Everybody's looking at it on computers. Well, uh, uh, Valley of the Dolls was a, a a massive success, as I say, but also critically panned by everyone. Hmm. There wasn't a single person in the the literati, in the New York publishing world, in the New York Review of Books, on television even, anyone who was reviewing books at the time, uh, gave it two thumbs down. But uh, that did not inhibit its sales. And again, Jacqueline Suzanne went around the around the country promoting it and having a good old time appearing on the Johnny Carson show with, with lots of bon mots. And uh, and all of her subsequent books also, and she didn't write many uh, because she died prematurely of cancer, but all of her books were hits. They all went to the top of the charts. They all sold, uh, you know, in copious quantities, and they were all reviled by the smarty pantses. And this is true also of the Harold Robbins books and a lot of books uh, that were at the top of the charts um, were regarded as trash by the people that, whose books were not selling. There's some gendered aspect to that as well. You know, romance novels are not of any kind are not generally held in high esteem. You know, to this day, you know, Nora Roberts probably writes a book a week. Right. And people go to the supermarket and buy them all and nobody bothers to even review them because it's just a romance novel. Well, and there uh, there's a, a big difference between a romance novel, I think, and these novels, which are sensationalistic mm. novels, right? They're not just um, about... A, a woman who's living on the fen and a man <laughs> and her comes, shirtless yeah. shirtless writer emerges from the mist. <laughs> a shirtless writer, exactly. These are books that uh, that a contemporary re- reader would be able to situate in a time and place. And a lot of them are about Hollywood or Hollywood adjacent, but they 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 have the they have an aspect of expose, right? This is a, a again a kind of tabloid culture where it's like behind the scenes. This is what's really happening in the world. And so it's titillating in a different way. It's not just that you're reading about sex. It's that you're seeing a glimpse of how decadent the, uh, the world of the, the rich and famous are. And this was before we had learned to hate the rich and famous. I mean, it's Joan Collins, sister Jackie with all her Hollywood wise book. It's, it's exactly that. And I've never read a single one. I've never read a single book in this genre. I'm, the farthest thing from an authority. Here. Yeah, you're busy writing books about the pyramids. <laughs> I have not read any books in this genre either, but... Um, but they're always sitting in vacation houses and stuff. Yeah, why, right. why am I not picking up a... Because you're reading Stephen King. That's what you're reading in a vacation. <laughs> My kids are reading Stephen King. <laughs> but this this kind of style infuriated uh, the literature types, and it, um, it, like a lot of snobs in the music business, there was a sense that the things that were popular, the books that were popular were garbage and it, and they were clogging the system. They were drowning out the, the, uh, the great books that, that the, that, you know, the serious novelists 
believed if everyone read their great books, of course, it would bring peace to the world and that we would be living in a in a nation of philosopher kings. And of course, that's not true. Not if these true. people didn't buy a Harold Robbins book, they just wouldn't buy a book that year. Right. There, uh, in, the, in 1956, there was an incident where a radio personality by the name of Gene Shepard uh, became convinced that uh, the, the bestseller list was rigged. And at the time, the bestseller list was um, rigged. rigged. I mean, it was compiled partly uh, by asking bookstore owners which books were being requested the most. And oh, it's like radio. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly like is radio. That how, is that how booksellers used to work? Yeah. Hey, I'd like to dedicate this copy of uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck to uh, my girlfriend, Diana. But if people came in and said, like, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get a copy of this book and the bookstore didn't have it, they would write it down. Another request for this book. And then that was how they determined the charts. And it really this, incentivizes books with low orders, right? This was true of, uh, of the music business for uh, decades. It was the, the top of the charts were, were largely compiled by asking, by polling, unofficially polling record store owners and DJs who, you know, what records do you think are the most popular ones? It's so funny for kids who poured over these authoritative lists yeah. to find that it was all made up and possibly paid off. Well, there wasn't any way of, uh, at the time, sort of, um, there, there weren't actuaries that were monitoring actual record sales. Record companies kept that stuff secret. And that was why payola came into the situation because right. you could just pay somebody to lie. But also you're calling some guy at a record store and he's like, oh, yeah, um, the most popular record is uh, Devo. My, my experience of being in my 20s in America was that record store clerks are not the most reliable people you would <laughs> no. you would go to in, in if you were doing any kind of data analysis. You're like, I'd like to buy this heavy metal Judas Priest record. And they're like, um, it's not actually heavy metal. <laughs> uh, but like, I don't trust their tattoo choices, much less their, their data compiling. Well, so this uh, this this personality, Gene Shepard, decided— by, by the way, Gene Shepard's pretty famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's the Christmas story guy. That's right. He's, That's right. Uh, he's uh, the Red Rider BB rifle with the thing in the stock. Yeah, Gene Shepard had, had a— uh, Beloved Midwestern storyteller figure. And an extensive uh, radio audience in the mid-50s. Yeah, like a late-night radio show that people just planned their evenings around. And, and a member of this sort of class of smart people in the world that are making good culture— and he started to encourage his listeners to go into bookstores and requ request the book I Libertine. <laughs> now, there was no book I Libertine. But it's funny, though. It sounds like it's kind of got the I the Jury thing of a Mickey Spillane true crime book. Right. It's, it's perfect. It has the word Libertine. It has Libertine, which, like, like one of these kind of prurient novels where it, it uses a fancy sex word. Mm -hmm. It's good. And, uh, and enough of his listeners got in on this hoax that I Libertine shot up the New York Times <laughs> bookseller, uh, you know, list um, and became like a publishing sensation and there was no book. Without existing. And it's so... It's like Chinese democracy or whatever. Long after it was already like uh, on the top of the charts, he, uh, Gene met with an author named uh, Theodore Sturgeon and contracted him to write I Libertine. And there's a they they put together a a very lurid cover of a of a sort of dan you know a 18th century dandy, and the 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 book cover is 
is filled with little jokes, you know, inside references. And he wrote this book. Uh, Theo Sturgeon sat down and wrote in one, he tried to write it in one uninterrupted typing session. <laughs> Just like wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote until he passed out. And I think ultimately the book was finished by the wife of the publisher who just kind of stepped in and like wrapped it up. If our audience does not know who Theodore Sturgeon is, he was one of the great pulp sci-fi writers of the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, I think he wrote, he wrote the Star Trek where Kirk sees the white rabbit or whatever, oh. some kind of planet where whatever you picture happens, the right. Stay Puft Marshmallow Man or whatever. Right. I think today he's mostly remembered for, well, two things. One, he inspired Kurt Vonnegut's pulp, crazy pulp sci-fi character Kilgore Trout. Trout Sturgeon. Interesting. Different I fish. had no idea that Theodore Sturgeon was Kilgore Trout. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in right. last name alone, I guess. Right. And then he also is responsible for Sturgeon's Law, which has become really popular in discussions of highbrow versus lowbrow culture. Do you know Sturgeon's Law? No. Sturgeon's Law, I think, is, I don't know what the number is, 90% of everything is crap. So it's, for, you know, as a, as a science fiction guy, when people would say, well, science fiction is just is lowbrow, it's crap, he would say, no, 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 there's... Just 10%. like anything else, there's a, there's a small percentage of good science fiction and a lot of crap, but that's true of, of your genre as well. Right. And he, he's probably not wrong. True of, uh, of American auto manufacturing. True of uh, right. sports teams. And it's the subtext of, of discussions in our culture to this day, like when Martin Scorsese is asked what he thinks about Marvel movies. You know, the assumption is that prestige, your average prestige gangster movie is more interesting or individualistic than your average Super Marvel movie. Studios product, right. which I would probably agree with. But Sturgeon's Law says, no, no, no. There's Remember all the lousy gangster movies, too. You're putting up Scorsese, the best of those, against, well, I guess Marvel would actually be the best of the superhero the movies, superhero too. movies, right. But whatever. Well, so, so, the, so Gene Shepard and Theodore Sturgeon you know, proved their point, which was not just that the thing was rigged, but that the... Um, it's broken. Uh, broken, and you could then you could fill the the slot with a novel written over the course of a night, <laughs> and it would you know it would continue to sell. Like their hoax uh, proved their point, I guess. Well, fast forward to the fast forward ten years to the middle sixties. Um, the New York literature set had become extremely disgruntled by the fact that the that the bestseller list was no longer uh, no longer populated by serious novels by serious authors. Uh, it was now there were no more books of poetry there. It was all uh, this sort of the, these sensationalist novels featuring drug addicted housewives, and it particularly irked some people in. Um, in New York, who were working for a, a daily tabloid newspaper called Newsday. Are you familiar with Newsday? Yeah, sure. Newsday uh, Newsday's persisted into, into our... Is it still printed? It exists even now. I thought so. So New York City is a big enough city, kind of like London, where it can support multiple newspapers that end up having a more wide-ranging uh, influence than than you would see, you would think was possible for a small newspaper, or a, I'm sorry, a local newspaper. Mm -hmm. And in New York, there are a few tabloids that uh, are modeled on the British style that are and some owned by British owners, yeah, right, or or, or Australian, Australian ones. 
that are extremely sensationalist. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in selling newspapers and they and they say any you know, anything they can think of. The, the invention of clickbait, basically. Right. Like the front of the paper is going to have some splashy true crime or Princess Diana's pants or something. Right. Yeah. But Newsday was, although a daily paper and and um, and designed as a around the tabloid format, uh, it was a serious newspaper and was regarded as the smart tabloid in the United States. Uh, a serious newspaper that that um, had real journalists working for it over the years. A lot of uh, the sort of big names, H. L. or H. L. Mencken. There were sort of the the top tier critics because it was a, a newspaper that served the greater New York metropolitan area. It had um, it had access to the to a lot of the great writers, and did quite a bit of in depth journalism. Um, it was it was part of uh, the Newsday played a role in in coverage of Watergate, like hmm. a somewhat instrumental role in Watergate, and also was one of the newspapers that. That um, that took a stand against the Vietnam War um, d- during the sort of mid '60s. It was actually edited by Bill Moyers, <laughs> who had been who had been a speechwriter for uh, for Kennedy and Johnson. And Bill Moyers, of course, we know as a as a later day uh, television person, PBS type, PBS uh, journalist. But he was the editor. It was um, and. And they famously published the writings of John Steinbeck in the late '60s. We talked about we talked about this phenomenon in our last episode. Steinbeck had been a, a famous and revered liberal throughout the the mid part of the 20th century, a real New Dealer, who by the '60s found himself on the wrong side of politics, believing he was still a liberal. Believing he was still a everyone else changed. He was the Al Cap of this story, mm-hmm. and he wrote a series of articles. He actually traveled to Vietnam. Steinbeck. This is after travels with Charlie. This is after his Pulitzer Prize. These are some travels with a different Charlie. <laughs> Charlie don't serve. He went there and and sent a you know sent a whole series of articles back from Vietnam, basically. One hundred percent supporting the LBJ cheerleading the war narrative. That's right. I didn't know this. That's really interesting. Yeah, uh, he believed in the 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 um, domino theory, and he traveled with the troops. He had he He's had an a embed. He had a son that was there fighting in Vietnam, and wrote these uh, wrote these these missives, and they were extremely controversial at the time because the public opinion was beginning to turn against the war and certainly the liberal public opinion had turned against the war and the idea that steinbeck this literary giant Lion, who, yeah. who had uh you know who had written the dust bowl definitive epics, moral authority of the depression right had become a hawk and uh, and like al cap believed he was still on the right side of history and um in fact those uh those writings of Steinbeck were suppressed. Uh, they appeared in Newsday and then were never, never again, never compiled and published. I think his Steinbeck's widow wanted nothing to do with them. A lot of people in the Steinbeck camp believe they tarnished his legacy. And it was only during the Obama administration that the collected 
pro-Vietnam work of Steinbeck was was published as a you know as a single volume, Steinbeck in Vietnam, and probably just as a curio for. Uh, it's interesting because he did. He made the same transition my dad did, which was by the by the time by 1970, Steinbeck realized his mistake and ended up understanding, and I think partly under the influence of his son who'd fought there, uh, you know, came around to an anti-war point of view. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that. It must have been a lot of the kids coming home that changed their parents' minds. Yeah, and just I think, and also watching the war depicted on television. Mm-hmm. Um, I think got to people of that greatest generation who, you know, kind of couldn't believe their eyes. And I think, I think the consensus about his writings about Vietnam were that he was thinking aloud in the newspaper and he was indignant, but also you could see, you could hear his, his voice just kind of processing the war and maybe trying to explain it to himself. I mean, that comes with being an authority for decades, right? right? You just kind of assume there's going to be an audience for your musings, and sometimes they should maybe be a little more examined. Right. Uh, there was a writer at Newsday by the name of Mike McGrady, and he was um, sort of recruited by Bill Moyers to respond to Steinbeck. He ended up uh, writing a book called A Dove in Vietnam, and he went as a reporter and countered the Steinbeck letters with um, with a real sort of tough take on Vietnam and was famous for it and, um, and a, a very respected writer of the time. But he was also a member of this New York writing culture that, um, that kind of couldn't believe having published a dove in Vietnam, uh, sort of couldn't believe that Jacqueline Suzanne's latest novel about uh, housewives on pills was selling millions and millions of copies <laughs> was, a day. He was radicalized by like so many people when his book didn't sell. <laughs> uh, and so he concocted the idea with, uh, with a group of his fellow newsday writers who, when you look at them in photographs, they are the classic right. nicotine stained uh, fingers. <laughs> yeah, they all have dark glass or, you know, dark framed, uh, nerd glasses and receding hairlines. They're I all wearing I, ties. I wish I could hang out in whatever that bar was. Yeah. You know, we missed the time when we could hang out with these gruff yeah. reporters that had all gone to Vietnam. Seen it all. So he went to his group of friends and he said, I'm going to, we, we need to write a, uh, a pulp novel and I want it to be as bad as possible. Was he hoping to just, uh, point out how, flimsy and fake the whole endeavor was or was he hoping this was his way to make a fortune no he was hoping to spoof okay to spoof it and you know i think hoping against hope that he would that this book would actually uh fool people but well you spoof what's popular you know like mel brooks had a late period hit with space balls because people wanted to see something star warsy in theaters and it was in his desire to make it intentionally bad, I think he intended that it would be received as a spoof, right? I don't, I don't think he really expected that the book would fool anybody. It was meant as a almost a National Lampoon style, you know, America's high school yearbook. And there would be some teeth in it, right? If he actually didn't like these kind of books and could kind of point out the folly of them. Oh yeah, it was a, it was it was a sneering book. Um, a few years ago, during the 2016, the run-up to the 2016 election, I was part of a project where a bunch of indie rockers wrote songs about the upcoming election. I remember this, and most of the most of the songs were biting 
um, not satirical. They were just uh, they just said what they thought. Yeah, just this like I hate Trump or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a song called "Make America Great Again" in the in the character of a pro-Trump songwriter, and all the lyrics were just sort of what you would. It was just a song as though written by a pro-Trump songwriter, and I actually did fool um, a lot of people. Who, as recently as a few weeks ago, it right. got resurrected, and people were like, "Whoa, what about this dark chapter in in John's musical career? He wrote a Trump song." That's right. There were there were a lot of uh, leftists who were appalled by it, and some conservatives that adopted it. And I actually uh, got a message from someone who said, "I'm an ultra conservative. I really like your shows." I know your song is a parody, but I prefer to listen to it as though it were sincere. <laughs> There's so little good media for these people yeah. that they'll take anything. Yeah. Otherwise, they have to read those Bill O'Reilly books about Paul Revere. They're like, thanks for your service. And uh, <laughs> what can I say? Like, good. But, uh, but this book, which was written by, um, by this group of Newsday writers, there were 25 men and two women. <laughs> That's probably... Generous for what the ratio actually would have been in these bars, right? right. Uh, they uh, they wrote a book where each writer wrote a chapter, and the premise was, you know, kind of the flimsiest pre- uh, premise that a that a woman. Well, there were there was a husband wife couple named Bill and Jillian, or Gillian. How do you pronounce that name? It's Jillian, right? With a G. Yeah. Uh, most people say Jillian, but I know yeah. I met Gillian Flynn once, and she says Gillian, and, yeah. I, and I think right. I said it wrong. Uh, there's Depends. a husband and wife that have a radio show, Billy and Gil- the Billy and Gilly show, and uh, and the their marriage falls apart, but they continue to do the show, and the husband is unfaithful, and so Jillian Blake or Gillian Blake, the 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 heroine of the book, mm-hmm. proceeds to go around her Long Island neighborhood and sleep with everyone she can, and so each each story, each vignette is. A different partner uh, is Gillian the going. Mailman, and, and, the, that's right. Uh, there's a there's a mobster. There's a rabbi. You know, she's just having sex with everybody. Each chapter written by a different person. Each chapter written as poorly as that writer can muster. You know, just like tortured analogies, terrible metaphors. I find bad writing to be hard. It's very. Is that hard. true? Is it true of bad songwriting as well? Well, yeah, it is. And in fact, it, when Mike McGrady was. Um, was editing the book, he said he really had to work hard to to dumb the writing down. It was, a lot of these writers were just too good, and they couldn't st- they couldn't stop themselves. Right? They once they got into it, they were actually writing fairly good writing. Um, they published the book uh, under the the pseudonym Penelope Ash, and that's Ash with an E, uh, a woman that. They portrayed as a frustrated housewife from Long Island who wrote this book, you know, as part of her. She wasn't actually sleeping with everybody in the neighborhood. This was her. She's working through some things. Yeah, this was her sex fantasy. And uh, they actually got a picture of Mike McGrady's sister-in-law, who was a beautiful (laughs) girl, and put her on the back cover. And they reached out to Lyle Stewart, a man that we've met before on the omnibus, mm, remind me as the publisher of the Anarchist Cookbook. Oh, right. And Lyle Stewart was, you know, a a, a dirty book peddler, but not not like a smut book peddler, but like he was the guy that wanted to publish all the books that no one else dared. He was a friend of Bill Gaines, the publisher of 
a Mad Magazine. Because there could have been obscenity trials back then. Right. And, Still. and these were, you know, these were books that he, this was the era when they were really pushing the, um, pushing censorship mm-hmm. laws, pu- pushing the first amendment as a, you know, a, um, what, back when the first amendment was something that, that like publishers really stood up for. Well, he would have been a test case, right. you know, there's some legal risk in printing stuff like that back then. And he ended up, I mean, Lyle Stewart, uh, one of the one of the downsides of being Lyle Stewart is he ended up publishing the Turner Diaries, which were which was the conspiracy book that influenced Timothy McVeigh, or or reputedly did. And tur- it turned out to be some kind of hoax, right? The Turner Diaries, yeah, or, totally yeah. a hoax. But uh, you know, Lyle Stewart was I, he was actually one of the original owners of or one of the founders of the Aladdin Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. <laughs> Uh, he published a lot of books on like how to how to gamble, how to how to game the system. Well, his books must have paid then. They, they, yeah, it must. This business was doing pretty well for him. Yeah, he, it was. Even if they're in kind of shady back of magazine ads, he published uh, a magazine called Expose. It's part of this same this same sort of uh, like sensationalist Celeb culture. gossip culture. And so Lyle Stewart published uh, published Naked Came the Stranger. They actually. Uh, it was it was Lyle Stewart that, in reading a Hungarian nudist magazine, found a picture of a beautiful blonde girl with her back to the camera. She's a shapely naked girl with long blonde hair, and he just ripped the page out of the magazine and made it the cover of the book. <laughs> this was you know Hungary was behind the Iron Curtain. And, She's uh, not going to see. They don't even have property. They're never even going to see this. We, we should point out that like these kind of. Nominally, nominal uh, media celebrating the naturist lifestyle of just camping and playing volleyball naked were kind of just a thinly disguised way to market pornography as something that was clean and natural, right? Mm-hmm. Hawkeye Pierce in Mash famously had a collection of nudist magazines where where uh, people were playing volleyball in the sun. So yeah, the lifestyle is just a f- and phony. Oh, I mean, there are there are actual nudists. They yeah. didn't invent it. No. But as a mass culture phenomenon, it just became a way to deliver softcore pornography to people without having to be in the porn business. Well, and there are lots of people that like to be naked, but nudism also often has like weird undertones of um, spouse swapping. Yeah, there's also a lot of swapping. I, think. <laughs> I, I would assume. Anyway, naked came the stranger uh, is published. And I think to everyone's surprise is a hit. Starts selling, sells 30,000 copies. How, how much awareness is there out there that it's a spoof? None at oh. the time. <laughs> uh, Penelope Ash is, uh, the, her, the fiction of, uh, of her is maintained. The, the sister-in-law actually goes out and, and does media. Oh, she does events. Yeah. She's a good sport. She's a good sport. I thought maybe they just grabbed her picture off a mantelpiece and didn't tell her no, no. that she was now a best-selling author. No, she was in on the in on the game, and uh, the you know the book is basically just the worst softcore porn you ever read. I guess it, that just it worked. It did expose the enterprise just right. just as a way to get your hands on a series of explicit pages that don't have to have any. Quality, viewer, uh, reader engagement, uh, even good prose, apparently. Well, and the, and the, the prose is, um, the prose is not, 
it's not just uh, like gross depictions of sex, right? It's not, it's not so lurid. It's, it's actively bad. Like, like just um, syntactically and, oh, you know, over the top uh, simile and metaphor and. Yeah. If you um, like, uh, I'll, I'll read you, you a couple of quotes. I was going to ask. And if you're, uh, if you're, if you're sensitive to this kind of talk, uh, maybe you can, you can uh, fast forward. Well, how dirty is this? Um, well, let's see. Does it have the word bosoms? Uh, yeah, like here's a quote. Uh, then he peel, then he pulled off the black net panties. There was a cellophane sound as they were peeled past her knees. Um, uh, a cellophane. <laughs> this is almost like the bags of sand thing from Forty Year Old Virgin, where it's clear that this person has never removed panties. <laughs> um, with that, he thrust Gillian back onto the bed and made a flying leap with the clear intent of pinning her down to stay. But she swerved to one side, and the holy man. Stiffed with lust, came down standard first on the bedpost. For a full two minutes, he did not rise. He lay there, crumpled up, hissing incoherently. So it's got kind of this overwritten purple prose. Four minutes, he did not rise. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's a lot of like, oh, 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 exclamation point, exclamation point. You know, like a a half a page of it. (laughs) yeah, her skin, the color of India tea at summer's end, flowed nicely over a sender, slender frame. Uh, <laughs> it's true that there's a very fine line between, like, what would be good writing of this kind right. and, I mean, it's it's hard to parody stuff that's already that far. Her legs were superbly designed. The hips, though trim, were deceptively full. Like, it's the, it's the stuff that if you got this in a writing contest, you would you would— you you would detect that the writer was really trying, uh, but did not have the did not have good instincts. And there is there is a uh, an award given every year by the British magazine Literary Review for the worst sex scene in right. fiction of the year. Right. And it's always funny because often it goes to a big name who thought he was being, you know, very uh, mm. honest and artful. Right, really and, getting in getting in there. Right, and it turns out there's just no. There's just no good way to write yeah, I about mean, sex. Truman Capote had famously said, I think, about Jacqueline Suzanne that uh, she wrote her sex scenes uh, as though she had never had sex. And I think there's quite a bit of that, that parodying that here in this book, too. Uh, so uh, Mike McGrady decides to uh, to reveal that it's a hoax. And uh, they're booked on the David Frost show. Penelope Ash is booked on the David Frost show. And a lot of people tune in. There's a the audience is full of of uh, women breathlessly awaiting the appearance of their of the their new literary star. Does Frost know what he's getting into here? Frost does. Okay. And so uh, Frost calls out the uh, the author Penelope Ash, and instead of this comely young writer, twenty five <laughs> men in black suits with uh, Woody Allen glasses march out onto the stage, uh, and the and the uh, and the two women also are there. And it's a big hilarious reveal, and they think that the hoax is, you know, they've perpetrated their hoax. They've proved their point that you can write a book intentionally trashy and it would be a bestseller. But at the revelation, book sales actually increase. And sure, people are talking about it. The book becomes an enormous hit, even though it's 
commonly understood that it was written as a hoax. Well, because now we know it does two things. Like we already knew it could titillate housewives. It can continue to do that, apparently. And now there's a new second audience that wants to snigger at the jokes, but also they're getting some trashy writing too. And you see Naked Came the Stranger even now in, in vacation houses. It still has that sexy picture. Although the Hungarian photographer and his model eventually, I think after the after the fall of the Iron Curtain, came after the publisher for royalties and won. Imagine if you're somebody who in the 90s and you see the Berlin Wall fall, your first thought is, oh, crap, what if that Hungarian <laughs> woman finds out? <laughs> but the, uh, the, the sad part of the story is that Mike McGrady, uh, uh, a respected and awarded journalist, and a lot of the uh, – there are more than a couple of the writers uh, of the chapters of the book – were Pulitzer Prize winners, you know, like there are quite a few um, lauded and respected writers. They became known primarily for Naked Came the Stranger. Like a dove in Vietnam is not anything close to the first line on Mike McCready's obituary. And he went on to kind of a, 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 a continued to have a, an illustrious journalism career. He, um, uh, he is the person who popularized the word house husband or invented it. Oh, interesting. He decided to take a year off and take the role of house husband as his wife worked and then wrote a book about it. And um, One of these gimmicky one-year experiential journalism things. Yeah, but became a national celebrity because he was— Sure, the, I bet he was on Donahue six times. Yeah, the first person to, to, uh, to come out. As a house husband. Except it didn't work. Stay-at-home dad caught on. Yeah, that's right. House husband never actually worked. <laughs> he also ended up uh, writing a couple of books with the porn star Linda Lovelace uh, because he'd become he'd – he'd, he'd always been a feminist, but he became kind of a radicalized feminist as a result of his experience in this world of the sort of exploitative pulp sex fiction – and these, um, these are ex, these are books about the porn industry. Or? So Linda Lovelace, um, in the eighties, you know, she'd famously starred in Deep Throat, and then in the in this book ordeal that she wrote with uh, Mike McCready, she revealed that her husband had forced her to make uh, the porn film, and it was an expose of the the seedy underside right. of of the porn. It's not unusual. There is plenty of coercion, and this came out in the in the mid eighties during the. Nancy Reagan, Reagan administration, Tipper Gore era, where there was a lot of um, yeah, hand-wringing about, about adult porn, entertainment. But it was also the era when adult entertainment was exploding as a, as a, uh, with the rise of the VHS. But, but at least Mike and Linda were telling people they should feel bad about that. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, Gloria Steinem wrote the introduction to the second book. Like, Linda Lovelace became a, uh, a hero of, of, Mid eighties feminism, yeah, a, a tragic. She lived a tragic life, uh, but anyway, sadly, Mike McGrady now is almost universally known primarily as the writer of Naked Came the Stranger. He wrote a book afterwards called uh, Stranger Than Naked, a a primer of how to write dirty books. <laughs> for fun and profit. That's his publisher saying like, Hey, what can you do that? Uh... Well, but he made it, he made the book a, uh, you know, it's a romp about having done naked came the stranger, but he was actually offered a half a million dollars to write a sequel. Wow. To write a equally bad sequel. And he wouldn't do it. He didn't do it. 
he felt like it was beneath his dignity. I just think he should not be ashamed of, is he still with us or is he passed on? He's died. I mean, you sh- I don't think you should feel bad about if your lone accomplishment is a really good joke. I mean, he told a joke that entertained millions of people when they weren't in on it. And then again, when they were, that's, that's hard to do. He should be proud. It is. And I think it's, I think if you are a serious writer or musician or artist and you, and, and your novelty song is what, yeah, you believe that about yourself and then you have a novelty hit or a, or you write a joke book. That's a hit. You never can, or it's, it's rare that you embrace it and say like, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a clown now. I mean, dying is easy. Comedy's hard. And that concludes Naked Came the Stranger, entry 823.MT2538, certificate number 50150. Futurelings, you know by now that John and I were not invulnerable to the pressures of our time. Uh, we did not read Jacqueline Suzanne books, but we did something even trashier. We were on social media as at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick specifically. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's classy content. It's the best you can get on there. But it's still social media. Uh, We received electronic mail at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, please uh, do not send us trashy paperbacks from your your beach vacation. Uh, But send us anything else you want to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. That's where the Omnibus Project receives its physical mail. Uh, if you would like to donate to continue to support uh, John reading dirty books at you, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Hey, maybe that should be a, a listener incentive. You'll, you'll read, uh, at a certain level, you'll read chapters of trashy novels to people. I would love it. I mean, not even trashy novels. I'll just straight up read transcripts of 70s porn movies. People, They're at least as good. People fall asleep to this show. Maybe there are people for whom that would be comfort food. Your voice reading uh, reading Valley of the Dolls or Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or whatever. Her breastuses heaved with excitement. <laughs> with bosomy excitement. As he wandered sultrily up against the bedpost. We did not mention the futurelings who congregate on Facebook and or Reddit. Look them up. <laughs> Look them up. <laughs> Why not? See what they're up to. Like, what could go wrong? If you're in the neighborhood. It's like my dad used to say about, my, about some like distant cousin. Oh, you're in Minneapolis? Look him up. <laughs> people often think that will happen. I know two people in a city. They should hang out. Yeah, right. Nope. Not going to look them up. Got other things planned. <laughs> uh, Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when we still copulated because there were still distinct sexes instead of your future where you're all hermaphrodites. All reproduction has been replaced by video games. Right. Right. You just you rub your bark against one another and, and repopulate the earth. Or, or I guess it's it's conceivable that it's just a, a fungus, that our that there's a fungus among us. Spores, very easy. Yeah. 
you uh, you just send out spores whenever you want, and maybe you get baby fungi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on you know, that's not even their final form. Fungi or a uh, fun gal. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know when the mushroom gender reveal that's happens. Really terrible, and you should be ashamed. It's not great. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.